forgive me, folks. I committed a major oversight yesterday when I recorded yesterday's podcast. I forgot to note a significant datum. Yesterday's podcast was the 100th official broadcast of the NPO podcast. Actually, you can't call it a broadcast yet because broadcasts intimates that it's taking place live in real time. And these are, of course, recorded. But it was our 100th podcast. Now, why is that significant? Well, because most people who attempt podcasting quit after seven episodes. So we've exceeded that and then some, and we hope to continue for a very long time. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another NPO podcast, the 101st NPO podcast, to be specific. If you have not already subscribed to the show, please do so by going to either the iTunes App Store or the Google Podcast Store, depending which device you use, and search for the NPO podcast and click subscribe. In the alternative, you can go to either of those two places. Simply download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service, podbean.com, and you can subscribe that way. Regardless of which method you choose to subscribe to the podcast with, you can leave reviews, you can leave comments, and we please do ask that you leave reviews. Reviews are how the show gets discovered. Reviews are how the show gets rated. It comes up in the search results when people search in either the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, and we rely on that to help expand the show. So please do leave a review wherever you go. I'm doing something unusual today. I'm actually smoking a very fine cigar during the broadcast. I'm not a big smoker. Uh, I really don't smoke per se, but I do enjoy a high-quality cigar occasionally, and I found a way to enjoy that little diversion without smoking too frequently where it makes any compromise to your health. And I want to share that with you. I don't normally do it. A number of years ago, I've always been a big fan of radio. So a number of years ago, I stumbled upon a show called Smoke This. And it was started by a man who called himself the general of the cigar army. And all his listeners were his lieutenants. And then it evolved into the Cigar Dave show. And he was on radio for 25 years. He started in Tampa, Florida, and he became syndicated. Now, one of the reasons why I don't normally smoke on the show, one second, is because I'm not doing guests like a lot of live talk show hosts like Rush Limbaugh uh, might, for instance. And of course, our prayers go out to Rush at this difficult time for him. Because he has guests. So while guests are speaking, Rush can... Um, occasionally puff his cigar to keep it lit without disturbing the flow of the show because he's not speaking while the guest is talking or the person on the call-in line is talking. Uh, I don't have that luxury. But given that it's midwinter and I don't like to smoke at home and smell the place up with cigars for the, for the wife and the son, and it's a little bit too uncomfortable to be out on the terrace, I just decided I'd smoke in my office while I was recording the podcast and do it that way. Anyway, Cigar Dave has since also gone to the podcast world, and he has a great officer's club. $22.95 a month, you join the Cigar Dave Officer's Club. They send you three cigars every month from a new collection. This month was the Alec Bradley, a new line of cigars that he's come out with. And it was very unusual in that there were four cigars in the pouch this month. And that is unusual. Usually it's only three. 
Very, very rarely it's only two if it's a very expensive collection. But the general gets very good prices on these cigars, so it's a very inexpensive way for you to sample what would otherwise be very expensive cigars. There is no way that I could buy these four Alec Bradley cigars for $22.95. There's just no way. Not in a, in a general uh, cigar store. Maybe it's a mail-order place. You might get something close to that, but you really can't. So if you're, if you're a cigar smoker or you'd like to just occasionally enjoy a cigar and not have to be dependent by going and buying a box and feeling that since you have them, you have to smoke them up like I used to do when somebody presented me with a box of cigars, this is an easy way. Three cigars a month, you limit yourself to those three. They can't possibly do you any harm. Might give you a lot of joy and a lot of relaxation. So consider that. Go to CigarDave.com. And I'm not getting anything for offering that. I'm just sharing something that I found for myself. Now on to today's business. Well, President Trump, as you know, has been very, very silent since leaving office. Part of that was a decision on his part, I think. I think he wanted to take a low road while the impeachment was just burning itself out, which it did, leaving it to his lawyers to very deftly handle, which they did. And part of it was a consequence of the fact that social media thinks they now control the First Amendment in this country and banned him from many of these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, etc., you name it. Well, now that the impeachment over is over, Trump is silent no longer. Now, we covered on the show yesterday the contemptible actions of Mitch McConnell in what he did. And it was disgusting uh, to have Mitch McConnell come out and excoriate the president and actually undercut his vote to acquit the president by basically saying that uh, President Trump was responsible for the mob uh, doing this. So it's really ridiculous. And there's much evidence coming out to indicate that President Trump is not just living in a fantasy world. And I've said that from the beginning. According to the um, forensic data that Mike Lindell, you know who he is, he's the man that um, has now been banned from uh, Bed Bath & Beyond and Cole's department store because he makes the My Pillow, and he committed the great offense of supporting Donald Trump. He's also running for the governor of his home state of Minnesota, where he manufactures those pillows. They're excellent. My wife and I both sleep on them. According to Mr. Lindell, President Trump actually received 79 million votes to Joe Biden's 68 million. And I have to give some credence to that, and I'll tell you why. I've heard a lot of these people, WOR Radio, talking about Trump uh, lost 8 to 10 percent of the Republican vote, and that's why he lost the election to Joe Biden. Well, the one question they can't answer, uh, given that things are so partisan in this country and Democrats mostly support anybody who has a big D in front of their name on the ballot, if Trump lost all these 8 to 10 percent of the Republicans, how was it that he managed to increase his vote total from 2016 by over 12 million votes and received over 70 million votes. How did that happen? Where did these extra 12 million votes come from, given that you're telling me that he lost these 8 to 10 percent of Republicans? You see, the math, math is everything. My, my father, rest in peace, was a big proponent of math, and he always told me to spend more time on math than I did. He said, because math is an exact science, and if you can reduce something to a mathematical equation, you'll never make a wrong decision, because there is no 
subjectivity in math. It either is or it isn't. And that 80-some-odd million they say Biden got isn't. So Mitch McConnell made some very disparaging marks about President Trump. So I'd like to read for you the full statement made by President Donald Trump. If I think it's too redundant, I won't read the whole thing to you, but I think you might want to hear it. Okay, here we go. The Republican Party can never again be respected or strong with political leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell at its helm. McConnell's dedication to business as usual, status quo policies, together with his lack of political insight, wisdom, skill, and personality, has rapidly driven him from majority leader to minority leader and will only get worse. The Democrats and Chuck Schumer play McConnell like a fiddle. They've never had it so good, and they want to keep it that way. We know our America First agenda is a winner, not McConnell's Beltway First agenda or Biden's America's Last agenda. In 2020, I received the most votes of any sitting president in history. And that's true. The power of the incumbent, this is me now talking, the power of the incumbency is incredible. For a sitting president to receive more votes in his re-election than he did in his primary election and lose is unheard of. In fact, we're going to go back over and look over the archives. I'm pretty good with vote totals. I don't know of a single incumbent president who received more votes in his re-election than he did in his election and lost Barack Obama, who they want you to believe was so perennially powerful and popular, actually won re-election pretty easily against Mitt Romney with three and a half million fewer votes than he won re-election with in 2008. But let me continue. Almost 75 million, more than any sitting president in history. Every incumbent House Republican won For the first time in decades, every incumbent House Republican won for the first time in decades. And we flipped 15 seats, almost costing Nancy Pelosi her job. Republicans won majorities in at least 59 of the 98 partisan legislative chambers. And the Democrats failed to flip a single legislative chamber from red to blue. We're talking about states now. And in Mitch's Senate Over the last two election cycles, I single-handedly saved at least 12 Senate seats, more than eight in the 2020 cycle alone. And then came the Georgia disaster, where we should have won both U.S. Senate seats. But McConnell matched the Democrat offer of $2,000 stimulus checks with 600. How does that work? It became the Democrats' principal advertisement and a winner for them, it was. McConnell then put himself, one of the most unpopular politicians in the United States, into the advertisements. Wasn't a smart move. Many Republicans in Georgia voted Democrat, or just didn't vote, because of their anguish at their inept governor. Brian Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and the Republican Party for not doing its job on election integrity during the 2020 presidential race. It was a complete election disaster in Georgia and certain other swing states. McConnell did nothing. 
and will never do what needs to be done in order to secure a fair and just electoral system in the future. And I have more on that for you later in this podcast to show you just how grave the situation can get very quickly. He doesn't have what it takes, goes on to say, Trump says, never did and never will. My only regret is that McConnell begged for my strong support and endorsement before the great people of Kentucky in the 2020 election. He did. He did beg for his support, and Trump gave it to him. He was a good party man, and that's how Connell repays him. And I gave it to him, he said. He went on from one point, I'm sorry, he went from one point down to 20 points up and won. How quickly he forgets. Without my endorsement, McConnell would have lost and lost badly. Now his numbers are lower than ever before. He is destroying the Republican side of the Senate, and in so doing, seriously hurting our country. Likewise, McConnell has no credibility on China because of his family's substantial Chinese business holdings. He does nothing on this tremendous economic and military threat. Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. He will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Where necessary and appropriate, I will back primary rivals who espouse making America great again and our policy of America first. We want brilliant, strong, thoughtful, and compassionate leadership. Prior to the pandemic, we produced the greatest economy and jobs numbers in the history of our country. And likewise, our economic recovery from COVID was the best in the world. We cut taxes and regulations, rebuilt our military, took care of our vets, became energy independent, built the wall and stopped the massive inflow of illegals into our country, and so much more. And now illegals are pouring in again. Pipelines are being stopped. Taxes will be going up and we will no longer be energy independent. This is a big moment for our country, and we cannot let it pass by using third-rate leaders to dictate our future. Now, that's the statement from Trump, and it's a strong statement, a very strong statement. Everywhere things are blue in this country, things are a shambles, and nowhere is that truer than in my home state of New York. Cuomo was in the news again today, answering questions at press conferences, asking if he has anything he regrets, if he takes responsibility for anything. He still cannot bring himself to admit fault. He's still hawking on this. Well, the only thing I regret is there was a void of information and that was exploited by politicians. He can't bring himself to say that he screwed up because he screwed up in a big way in a way that's actually criminal. I think there's actually a prima facie case for a criminal prosecution of Governor Cuomo on the charge of criminally negligent homicide. Now, why do I say that? As I said yesterday on the show, and this is the key thing that you have to understand, that nobody is really hitting home. You must grasp this. Cuomo is telling a half-truth in an effort to insulate himself from criticism. What he's saying is, Well, we didn't lie about the numbers. We reported every death. Now, that's true. They did report every death. But we didn't count these people as dying in the nursing home because they didn't. They were transferred from the nursing home to hospitals 
where they expired. That is also true. But that, ladies and gentlemen, belies the true nature of the problem and the criminal conduct, conduct on the part of Governor Cuomo. So let me say it for you again. These were nursing home patients. Patients who were COVID-free. They had their health problems. That's why they were in nursing homes to begin with. But they were not afflicted with COVID. In an effort to garner money by having people in facilities under the regulation of the state, rather than the 3,000-bed hospital that Trump set up in the Javits Center just to handle COVID-19 patients, and the hospital ship Comfort, which he sent and converted to a COVID facility at Cuomo's request, with the capability to host another 1,000-plus patients. Both of these facilities went grossly underused. There were never more than two or 300 patients in the Javits Center. That's only 10% capacity. There were never more than 125 patients aboard the Comfort, 10% capacity. Instead, Cuomo mandated that nursing homes accept COVID-19 positive patients as long as they had a vacant bed. Are you with me? Okay. By introducing infected people, he now put a population, the nursing home population, at risk for COVID-19. And from the beginning, the one thing we did know about this virus from the beginning is that the elderly and people in otherwise compromised states of health were the most at risk for it, or from it, I should say. By what sophistry of reason could any sane man subject these elderly people in the twilight of their lives, their golden years, trying to enjoy whatever little time they have left with friends and family, having worked their entire lives? By what sophistry of reason could you possibly subject him to a death like this by bringing infected people into that nursing home? Now, a while back, I mentioned to you but there was a state-run, a county-run nursing home, sorry, in Rensselaer County, New York. This is an upstate county. It runs on the uh, Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, New York border on the eastern part of the state. This one county executive gave an interview where he said that he quietly told the staff at that nursing home, that he was responsible for it, not to accept any COVID-19 patients, but not to make a big deal of it because he knew how vindictive Governor Cuomo could be. Now, Governor Cuomo, all this time, prior to the cat being let out of the bag recently with these reports from the New York Attorney General, has been saying it wasn't the COVID-19 patients that he ordered these people, these uh, nursing homes to accept, that infected the nursing home population and resulted in all these deaths. But it was the staff that brought the infections in. And that's about as incredible a statement you could possibly make. Well, guess what, Il Duce? This nursing home in upstate New York in Rensselaer County, they have staff. Staff was going in and out of there every day, but they didn't take any COVID-19 patients in in direct contradiction to your order. Do you know how many COVID-19 cases they had in that nursing home? Not a one. And we can assume that would probably have been the same had no other nursing homes been forced to take COVID-19 patients. Every person who didn't have COVID-19 in a nursing home and became infected in the nursing home 
because COVID-19 patients were sent there. Their blood is on your hands, Il Duce. Their blood is on your hands. And the fact that you hustled them out of the nursing home so they could die someplace else and technically didn't become a nursing home death doesn't alter the fact that but for your incompetence and your order, those people never would have got infected and they never would have been transferred to a hospital where they eventually died in the first place and died alone because your stupid draconian lockdowns wouldn't even let their relatives come in there and hold their hands, their sons, their daughters, their wives, their husbands. You're a piece of horse dung is what you are. You're a dumb son of a bitch and you need to be strung up. And I hope that the bell tolls for thee. Now, when I was reading President Trump's statement on Mitch McConnell, I mentioned to you about changes in the election. Flipping seats. Well, look what I found. There is a bill a bill in the House of Representatives known H.R. 1. A lot of people don't want to talk about it, so I'm going to tell you what it is. Now, there are some sponsors of this bill, and among them, 14 House Democrats who were elected in otherwise red districts. Very vulnerable if this thing goes to, goes to fruition. Now, a bill like this was um, presented in Congress before, when Trump was president, but it was defeated in the Republican-controlled Senate. That's not going to be the case now. So let me give you some of the high points of this, of this little uh, piece of legislation. Now, it's very close because the House is run by the Democrats, but only by 221 to 211. So if only six Democrats, if enough pressure is brought to bear on them, and they perceive themselves as vulnerable, they might suddenly vote against H.R. 1 and kill it. Remember one thing in politics. A, politics for, a politician's first objective is to get elected. Their second most high priority is to be reelected. Anybody who thinks that an action will result in their failing to be reelected will act in their best interest and not, and not um, carry out that action. Now, these Democrats are in, like I said, red areas of blue states. Is um, Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, Mike Sherrill of New Jersey, and, and a host of others. I'm not too concerned with exposing those names at this particular moment. We'll cover them perhaps in a, a, a subsequent podcast. But here's what the bill would do. This proposal brings together, I'm reading from a quote in the paper, in one bill, a veritable Democratic wish list of changes in virtually every aspect of campaigning, and voting in federal elections for president and members of Congress. Now, remember something. Voting in this country is primarily something that's controlled by the individual states. That's why in certain states, a convicted felon can't vote. But in a state like New York, a convicted felon can vote, as long as they're out of prison and they're no longer on probation or supervised release or whatever you uh, call it, depending on what um, authority 
convicted you to begin with. But in another state, like Texas, convicted felons can't vote. This would change a number of those things. It basically would institutionalize on a nationwide basis the very controversial registration and voting procedures that were hastily enacted in the six swing states in 2020, mostly in response to the COVID-19 pandemic that subsequently prompted all these multiple allegations of voter fraud in the presidential election. Now, if these things weren't so good for Democrats, they wouldn't be so quick to try and enact them in every state in the union. And as I said, they tried, but it was smacked down in the Senate when the Republicans controlled it. Here are some of the most notable provisions of this H.R. 1. Nationwide online voter registration with minimal verification requirements. Same-day voter registration. Automatic voter registration unless an individual specifically requests not to be registered. Legalization of ballot harvesting and making it illegal to disclose how an individual responded when asked if they are a U.S. citizen when registering to vote. Now, how does that follow? In case you've forgotten, you have to be a U.S. citizen in order to be eligible to vote. So why do you think they want to make it illegal to disclose how an individual voted when asked if they are a U.S. citizen? Because they want to prevent any Republican from challenging a person's vote on the basis that they might not be a citizen and therefore not legally entitled to vote in the first place. This is an absolute betrayal of the United States Constitution by elected representatives of the federal government. People who swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States. It goes further. It also includes nationwide registration of 16 and 17-year-olds. Have you spoken to the average 16 or 17-year-old lately? Have you spoken to the average 25-year-old lately? They don't know a goddamn thing about the history of this country. They don't know anything about the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812. They know nothing. All they know is the latest game on roadblocks or some prison game or some other ridiculous thing. They know all about that, new social media apps, but they don't know anything that qualifies them to vote intelligently. They're far too young to be able to vote. So it includes nationwide registration of 16 and 17-year-olds, availability of mail-in ballots with minimal screening qualifications, and restoration of felon voting rights after release from prison. Now, as I said before, I don't oppose restoration of felon voting rights after release from prison because that's something that's available right now. But it should be left up to the individual states. They decide how they want their elections run, whether they want felons to vote or not. You start putting these mandates in, pretty soon you'll have people voting while they're in prison. Can't have that. But those are only the provisions that affect voter registration and election procedures. Other parts of the bill place the redistricting, redistricting process under supervision of congressionally mandated independent commissions. Restructure the Federal Election Commission from its current bipartisan voting requirement to majority party control. 
It would also permit members of Congress to draw salaries from campaign funds in addition to their official compensation and includes findings supporting statehood for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Now, there's been some talk in congressional hallways about asking Pelosi to break the H.R. 1 into three or four separate pieces. This is a move that would give at least a few of the silent Democrats some leverage in being able to support some parts of the proposal while proposing others. But nobody would confirm that such an appeal has been made to Pelosi. In other words, even these vulnerable Democrats in these red states might not be so vulnerable if they supported a certain amount of these things, like say like restoration of felon rights or something like that. But when you start having to vote on all of these things, making District of Columbia, Puerto Rico. So at the end of the day, here's what they're looking to do. The same things that they used to steal the election in six states, they want to make sure they can use to steal the election in 50 states. That's basically it. Secondly, it's clearly the people who making the uh, making the law making the law for themselves. The law is made by lawyers for lawyers. Well, another way of saying it, the law is made by politicians for politicians. Some of these politicians have huge amounts of money put into their uh, campaign funds, and they just been looking for decades of ways to get it out. That's why they're always running for something, because they can, as long as they're running for something, they can spend the shit out of the campaign contributions for travel and everything else. Now they're going to do it to get salaries. It's not enough that if you're elected to Congress for one term, you have vested pension and medical benefit rights for the rest of your life. That's not enough. Show me another job anywhere for a private company. Even the, the holy grail of private companies, Goldman Sachs doesn't have that kind of compensation for its people. Why the hell do these borderline retards that get elected to Congress? You think Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez, a woman who couldn't even make a good barmaid, deserves that kind of compensation? But that's what they're looking for. That's what they're looking for. When the Epic Times reached out to these 14 red district Democrats, none of them would discuss the bill. None of them. Not a single one. I wonder why. This is why they're going after President Trump so much. This was the whole reason for the impeachment. This was the whole reason for this talk of having a 14th Amendment vote to try and disqualify Trump from holding future office. They're trying to silence your voices by silencing him because he was the only one that spoke up for you. And I'm telling you right now, if you live in these states where these people reside, if you are in Sean Patrick Maloney's district in New York, if you are in Abigail Spanberger's district in Virginia, Mike Sherrill of New Jersey, Carolyn Boudreau of Georgia, Tim O'Halloran of Arizona, Antonio Delgadio of New York, Chris Pappas of New Hampshire, Haley Stevens of Michigan, if you're in these districts, you better get involved. Ron Kind of Wisconsin, Amy Kim of New Jersey, Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, Cherry Bustos of Illinois, Cindy Axney of Iowa. You'd better get involved. If you're pissed about what happened in the six states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, if that armored you to your core because it was out 
in front, in open view of everyone, what they did. Be prepared to really be pissed off and kiss the country goodbye if they're able to replicate that in all 50 states. The time is now. The time is now to start building opposition for the midterm elections, to start writing and paper smearing these people with letters and phone calls. Put the fear of God in them. Let them know they won't be returned to Congress. Watch how fast they vote this thing down. Because if this thing gets through, the ball game is really over. And the sun will set on the greatest country that God ever saw, that God ever made. Called the United States of America. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>